Are you ready to study God's Word for a few moments? All right. We've been teaching in a series that we've entitled Embrace the Grace, and hopefully we're learning that God through grace, and as you will recall, we mentioned that grace really is unmerited favor. It's receiving something you don't deserve. People get grace and mercy confused. Grace is receiving something you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting something you do deserve. Are you following me? So we've been spending some time talking about the grace of God and how he wants to favor us with his love and uh, obviously his power, all of the things that would encompass his favor. It is undeserving. It is free. And at the same time, as we're talking about the wonderful grace of God, we're also trying to underscore that his grace transforms us as well. His grace, I'm going to do something probably not to, or I'm going to lose my notes. And if I lose my notes, then I just have to talk off the top of my head. And if I talk off the top of my head, God knows where we'll be. So, but his, uh, his grace transforms us and his grace certainly solicits a response from us. And so this morning in the few moments that I have, and I, again, I know the kids are with us and I'm going to believe God send an anointing right now. Everybody just agree with me. God send an anointing right now that even in the smallest of children, that somehow, some way your voice will communicate to them this morning. I believe it'll happen in Jesus name. I entitled the message this morning. Isn't grace risky? Isn't grace risky? You know, whenever you study grace and try to understand it, you'll find out very quickly that there are some inescapable tensions that you are going to have to live with. You know, the best illustration I have really is parenting. Uh, you love your kids. At least most days you love your kids, right? I mean, I, I mean, most days we love our kids. There are some days we may not be sure, but, but if, if we can get a deep breath and, and pause... We love our kids. We love our children. And as they grow, and those of you that may be older and your children have, have grown and, and you've watched them grow, you know that all through their life, as they're growing, they go through certain time periods of transition. And in those transitional time periods, what happens is, as a parent, if it's normal, you try to release more and more freedom to them. There comes a moment you... You see them grow and, and, and they ride a bike. You teach them how to ride a bike. And, and probably at first you're, you're close, you're watching them ride their bike. And then after a while, you let them just run to the garage, jump on their bike and, and take off bike riding. And, and slowly you allow certain freedoms to come to their life. Uh, a lot of us go through the, uh, you know, the, the, the parental transition of when our children come home and they say, so-and-so wants me to stay overnight with them this weekend. Those of you that are parents and you've heard, you know, your child say, so-and-so wants me to stay overnight. And the first time you allow your child to go and be at someone else's house overnight, there are all sorts of things that go through us as parents. And, and it's a part of the process that we begin to maneuver and navigate through in order to release certain freedoms to our kids when they get their driver's license. Oh, sweet Jesus, when they get their driver's license. And all of a sudden, they don't have to have you next to them in, in, the, in the car, but they get to go drive off by themselves. When they go off to college, oh man, that's hard. 
We had to leave one in Australia one time. You want to talk about hard. And all through life, there are these transitional points, parenting, that we release more freedom to our kids. Now, the inescapable tension is this. You love them and you want the best for them. And you know that they need their freedom. But the question is, as you're releasing freedom to them, is this. Will they abuse it? Isn't that true? You give them freedom. And you wonder, in the back of your mind, if I give them this freedom, are they just going to get a brain cramp and do something that's just off the chart wrong? I mean, if you let them go over and spend the night at a friend's house, are they going to sneak out at night and are they going to do something they ought not be doing? I mean, if you give them the keys to the car, is the first thing they're going to do drive out of the driveway, go to the interstate and see if the thing will go 110 miles an hour? I mean, can you trust them with this freedom? And this is a big deal. It might not have been a big deal for you, but it was kind of a big deal in our house, understanding when they got their freedom, how they got their freedom, and, and, and just believing God that somehow they were going to use this freedom correctly. And my guess, I'm just guessing now, and, and don't come up to me afterwards and have this great theological discourse. I'm just, this is just an illustration. My guess is that somewhere in God's mind, knowing the human condition, and knowing who we were. I mean, he couldn't plant one tree in a garden. Giving him all the other trees to eat from. One tree, we couldn't handle our freedom. Isn't that true? So, so I just started to think in the mind of God as he's looking at what redemption was going to do to the, 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 the humanity that he loved. And as he began to consider about setting them free, and giving them liberty. I just have to believe somewhere in the heart of God, he, he already knew it. I mean, truly, he probably just already knew it anyway. But, but the question is, are they going to abuse the freedom that I give them? Well, I'm going to settle that question. Will they abuse the freedom that they get? I'm going to settle the question. The answer to the question is yes. We all abused it here. Some have abused it in more egregious ways than maybe you have, but all of us have abused that, that freedom. Well, then it seems like God would have come up with a better plan if he knew people were going to abuse it. But you have to understand that, that it was the right plan because God already knows what many times we as parents have to be led to understanding. You see, initially, listen to this. I'm going to give you a, a real brief synopsis. Initially, God set up laws... Or he set up boundaries for us. Now, if you've never read through the book of Leviticus or, or maybe Numbers or even Deuteronomy, you just take, spend some time there and you're going to see that when God set up laws, they were detailed, they were intricate. Some we don't get, some we don't understand, but he had these boundaries set up for all of us. Now, I think he did that for two reasons. Number one is, I ultimately believe he did that because he wanted to make it so frustrating it would drive you and me back to his presence. We would finally get to the place because all of these boundaries and laws and everything else that were put upon us, it would drive us back to himself where we'd have to say, Lord, there ain't no way I could ever please you in and of myself. I believe that's a partial purpose of the law is that it, it brings us to the end of ourselves and it causes us to look to him. But the second thing I think is because that God knew 
that left to our own devices, you and I would find trouble pretty easily. That left to our own devices, we would find ourselves in difficult, even life-destroying situations. And so he gives to us these, these boundaries and these laws, not to just harm us or to, to frustrate us, though at times it, it, it is frustrating, but he did it for our own good because he knew that if we broke through certain boundaries, it would be to our own detriment. Now, there are many people who think that the law, the law is absolutely no good. That's what they think the Bible teaches. But I just want to read to you, post that verse, 1 Timothy 1, 8, it says this, but we know that the law is what? The law is what? It says it's good. Wow. It says if one uses it, lawfully keep going knowing this that the law is not made for a righteous person this is so important the law was never meant for those who have a relationship with jesus christ i'm going to get back to this in just a minute the law wasn't meant for you i'm going to i'm going to tell you why here in just a second knowing this the law is not made for a righteous person but for the lawless and insubordinate for the ungodly, for the sinner, for the unholy and profane, for murders of fathers and murders of mothers, for manslayers, keep going, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, post, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So the law wasn't meant for those that have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but he says the law was meant for these who weren't doing right or they were being unrighteous. Why? Because he wanted them to know that if they broke the boundaries, it would lead them to destruction. You're following me. Now, here's the deal, though. The deal is it never the boundaries never kept us out of trouble. It never solved our problem. Romans 8, 3. Listen to what Paul said there. He said, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now, let me explain this because many people get real confused at this moment. And this is just Christianity 101, the place of law and the place of grace. Let's say you're walking down the road and as you're walking down the road, you're on the sidewalk and you come up to a piece of property and there's a sign there that says, keep off the grass. Now, first off, if you have your children with you and they see a sign that says, keep off the grass, let's say that the grass starts right where this black ledge is. How many of you know that the nature of kids is this? Isn't that true? I mean, you can give them an assignment and they may keep the assignment, but how many of you know they're going to be this close? You can put signs up, you can tell them the boundaries, you can do all of this. Now, this is the part you have to understand. We put up the sign that says keep off the grass, but the sign in and of itself has no power to keep me off the grass. Right? I mean, I could put signs up all over this sanctuary, all over the church. I mean, we've got a few signs and things that we do do. But truth of the matter, the sign in and of itself doesn't keep you off the grass. It's just like all those signs out there on the interstate. That say 70. 
just being just being honest, isn't it true? That sign has no power to keep my speedometer at 70 miles an hour. That sign has no power to make me do what it wants me to do. So what do we do in life? What we do is, is we hire law enforcement people. And these law enforcement people ostensibly fear us into obedience. Isn't that true? You're going down the road, man. You're cooking to Columbia. And you're in that stretch of road right there between, you know, Jedburg and Orangeburg. And I mean, it's just trees and interstate and you're just... And you're, 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 you're blazing down that road and your speedometer says 85 miles an hour. And just to be honest, there are people passing you. And in your mind, you're going, well, I'm not going to get caught. They're passing me. In fact, if he pulls me over, I'm just going to tell it to him. Hey, there are people going faster than I'm going. And is it not true that as you're going and all those trees that are there and suddenly you see the front of an LTD just barely sticking out of some woods? Crown Vic, yeah. And what is the first thing you do? You see, the sign, the sign couldn't keep you right. But the law enforcement person basically feared you into obeying. Why is that? Because the human heart, this is just the human heart. The human heart naturally wants to put their toes over the line. Our kids, we want them to have freedom. But it usually takes, does it not with our children, a fear of a repercussion in breaking a boundary to corral them. And even then, sometimes they'll still, because the repercussion just, they don't care anymore. I mean, we've got people right now in jail who don't care about repercussions anymore. Our prisons are full with people who we put them in jail. We've, we've, we've sent them there for years and they keep walking on the grass. Why is that? Well, we all do that. There, it's the human heart. We'll go to grocery stores and it'll say 10 items or less. And we've got 12 and we're going to line up in the, uh, the 10 item line. We will break speed limits. We will, we will come to work late. We've all, the scripture said, fall short and sinned against the glory of God. So here's the question. The question is, if, if God sending the law and the boundaries doesn't work, then what must God do in order for something to happen in order that a holy God can have relationship with obviously unrighteous, holy people? How does this thing work? Well, let's read. Guys, post that Ezekiel passage, Ezekiel 36. God says this, he prophesies, he says, then I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols and I will give you what? Now, you see, we got to have a new heart, don't we? Because the old one, I'm still, the old one, I'm, I'm, I'm still lining up at the wrong line. The old one, I'm still wanting my way and I'm going to do my thing and I'm, I'm going to keep, and I'm, I'm not going to pay attention to anyone else. So I got to have a new heart. So the Lord says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you and I will take the heart of stone, the hard heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. And what does it say? And what? Everyone say the word cause. He puts his spirit in us and it causes us to do what? To walk in his ways. 
Listen, if his spirit is in you, then what happens is, is there's a compulsion on the inside to begin to walk in his ways. That's what it says. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Jump over to the book of Hebrews, just so you see this in the New Testament as well. It says, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Next one. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. And what, they, what he means is, is that when I brought the Jewish people out of bondage and I took them to Sinai, I gave them law. But out of that covenant, they couldn't. They couldn't keep it because the tablets couldn't make them want to do it. So he says, because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their what? And write them on their, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, this is what God saw. He saw when he looked at all of us, he saw, listen, I, I can't, I just can't keep throwing rules and laws at them. Something has to change. And so the Lord, instead of, instead of working from the outside in, the Lord says, I must now work with people from the inside. Because if it's not written on their minds and it's not written on their hearts, then truth of the matter is it's never going to be lived out in everyday, ordinary existence. See, can you imagine the freedom that grace brings when you no longer obey God because you have to obey God, but you obey God because you want to obey God? That's what the Word says. I'll put my spirit within them and cause them to walk in righteousness. You see, when, when God moves in us, I'm no longer trying to figure out I still haven't touched it, but how close am I? See, no longer am I trying to figure out how close I can get to the line and live there. But now I want to live my life in such a way that I don't even worry about those lines anymore. See, that's what that's what grace does in our life. And truth is, whether it's you or me, whether it's our kids, nobody's going to do what's right unless it's written on their heart. Now, now, as parent, let me let me just make a parental statement here. My parental statement in my household is this, that ultimately, if you'll allow God to write obedience on your heart, ultimately, if you'll allow God to write his ways in your heart, living in my house is going to be a wonderful place to live. Because as a good dad, I will I will bless you. I will help you. I will move in as much as it is humanly possible. Heaven and earth to provide for you, to give you a future, to pave the way and do that. And you know what? My children and my children are no different than your children. The, the truth is, if it doesn't get in their heart, they won't do what I've asked them to do. So we got to pray that God writes it on their heart. But in my house, this is what I say. If you don't if you don't want it written on your heart, then you will live under the burden of the law. And it'll frustrate you. And you'll rail against it. And you'll think I'm a jerk. And you won't like me. And the whole time you're railing against me, you don't understand that you're railing really against a precept of God. 
And that's a lot of our children's problems is that we think grace means just let them get by with it. And that's not grace at all. Grace is when their hearts have opened up and they're, and it's written on their heart and it's written in their mind to where it's not that, oh, I gotta do what my folks asked me to do, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, hey, if they're gonna let me stay out till midnight at 11.59.45, that's when I'm coming through the door. And truth of the matter is, for a lot of them, they come in at 12.02. Well, it was close enough, wasn't it? Well, you know what that tells me? It wasn't written on your heart and it wasn't written in your mind. See, that's what's going on in America right now. America is at a place, listen to me, as a nation. We send all these guys and women to Washington, D.C. or to Columbia, and they think their job is to simply sit around and write laws ad infinitum. And you know why they do that? It's because whether they've been trained in Christianity or not, they know that laws are the only way you can make people do what's right in their mind, whatever their right is. And then they create law enforcement in order to force rightness on the population. And they really think that the more laws they write and the more legislation they pass, it's going to cause a better society to exist. That is a lie and that is a falsehood. The reason being is this, that until we get righteousness written on our hearts and emblazoned in our minds, we will never do what is right. We can, we can try outlawing things and we can try corralling people this way and that way and all the rest. And America will never get right and it will never be what it can be until we come to the true and living God who is the only one that can reach down into a human being, pull out the old stony heart and put a new one inside there. Are you following me? Listen to me. I understand, I understand all the battles that are going on with Islam and Christianity and Buddhism. Listen, 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 listen. Only God, Yahweh, Jehovah, Jesus is the only one that pulls out old hearts and gives you new ones. That's not intolerant. That's the truth. That's the truth. But that's our problem. Is, and that's... That's why grace is so important, because grace transforms us. It changes us. But the problem is, is that even as we're transformed and we're giving freedom, people abuse freedom. Now, this is what's really cool, because we're not the first ones to have ever faced this. Paul faced it. He faced those who had been touched by the grace of God, but they were abusing their freedoms. Romans 6, post it, guys. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, let me stop there. Keep that up there. I'm just going to stop there for just a second. Because in Paul's day, what was going on is there was a group of people who understood that the only way you were saved was by grace through faith. They understood it. They understood that there was nothing they could do to merit it. It was undeserved. God did it as a free gift. But the problem was, is that is that in this, they convoluted the whole message of grace by saying this. Well, grace obviously is what covers me or excuses me from sin. And if I sin, therefore God must send more grace. So the more I sin, the more grace I receive. So therefore, it's probably a good thing I'm sinning. Is that not convoluted? Is that not twisted? And Paul says, well, wait, 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 wait. What are we going to say then? Are you going to continue in your sin so that grace just abounds in your life? This is what he says, certainly not. I always remember, because I studied this in the original, meginote is the Greek, and it literally means, it's hard to translate it. He's going like, 
Like, no, you moron. Never, 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 never. How could it be? How could you think such a thought? How could that even go through your mind? Because he says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And as convoluted as it sounds, people thought the more they sinned, the more grace they got. And that was, you know, this good thing. Now, Paul uses this phrase. He says, no, 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 no. That's a that's that's a ghastly thought. Let's, you got to you got to begin. That's get that out of your mind. That is not the grace of God. That is not the grace of God. Now. Isn't grace risky? The question is, is that if grace is unmerited, there's nothing I can do. God does it because he loves me. He cares for me. Then there are going to be some of these inescapable tensions and some challenges that are going to come in this area. Now, I'm going to tell you because he will tell us how we get through this and navigate this here in just a second. But I want to I want to just stop here for just a second and deal with some tensions or some uh, challenges to grace. And this is the part I'm going to go through this very, very quickly. You may want to write these down. Number one, I wrote this down, is that we've got to begin to discern if grace sets me free. If I'm free before the Lord, I still have to discern between order and control. Order and control. I've, I've found one man's order tends to be another man's control. It's interesting that, that God in his freedom doesn't allow us just to do as we please. There's still order within his kingdom. And order looks different. Can I just share this with you? Order looks different when you go in, in different people's lives to some extent. Now, I'm not talking about the major issues. There are major things that are obvious in the scripture that we all adhere to. We all adhere to the fact that we're to live clean and upright and righteous. You know, we're to be sexually pure. You know, uh, you know we're not to be drunken. We're not to be liars and cheats and, and thieves. I mean, there are certain things all of us know, should know, that are sort of 101 uh, uh, items, these things uh, are in our life. But when it comes to order, God requires certain order. And order looks different ways in different people's lives. I'll just give you an example in church life. For instance, when you come to legacy, there's an order here. And, and, and we want freedom to exist and, or, uh, and liberty to exist. But within that liberty, there still has to be some semblance of order. Now, I'm going to get to some other quotes here in just a moment, but, but order, how do I want to say this? Order always looks uh, different in other people's homes. For instance, in your house, you have an order in your house. I have an order in my house. Maybe in your house, it's cool to put your feet on the table, jump on the couch, you know, leave dishes for three weeks in the sink. I mean, if that's how you want to live at your house, you can do anything you want. You're free to do that. That's your order. But if you bring your order over to my house, how many of you know we could have a problem? Because we don't jump on our couches. We, we, we try to tend to certain things a certain way. We may not put our feet up on all the furniture. Now, that's not to say you're unchristian and I'm Christian or vice versa. It simply says that there's an order. And even though we're set free and even though the grace of God is released in our midst, there's still going to be an order wherever we go. Amen? It's like in this house, this church. I'm not, I'm not uh, church A, church B, or church C down the road. They have an order in their house. But this is this house and, and we have an order here. Now, that's not controlling you. It's, it's trying to bring people a sense of safety or security in a sense that freedom exists here. Yes, 
But there still has to be an order. So the grace of God still provides order in people's lives. It, it, doesn't just, it just doesn't abandon us to anything. Let me go through these other statements, and I think all of this will dovetail together. Number two, because in grace you have to distinguish between liberty and license. Liberty and license. Now, what do I mean by this? I mean that Paul, for instance, when he was talking to the church at Corinth, in about chapter 6 or thereabouts, he begins to call them to task on the fact that they were eating meat that, were, that was sacrificed to idols. And that some of the Christians were buying meat, maybe at discounted prices, down at the pagan temple. And so they were taking this meat home and they were eating this meat that originally was set up to be sacrificed to idols. And there were other Christians, some of them younger, who, who were seeing this practice take place. And it was causing them to stumble in their walk because all they could see was meat sacrificed to idols going down Christians' mouths. And Paul looked at the Corinthian church and he said, don't let your liberty or your freedom cause another to stumble. Don't let your liberty turn into license that says, well, I can just do anything I want and everybody else can hang it on their ear. I've uh, told this story through the years. And uh, again, I know there's different viewpoints in Christian people's lives, but I can give you an example. I had a, a gentleman come into my office one time. This is some years ago. And uh, he looked at me and, and he was sorrowful. He was he was broken. He said, Pastor, I want to share something with you. He began to tell me about his life in alcohol addiction, that he'd been addicted for years. It destroyed his family. It destroyed his future. It destroyed everything there was about him. And he was really on a daily walk to try to keep this area uh, in a place that it needed to be in check in his life. But the other day or the day prior to coming to see me, he said that he had seen one of the Sunday school teachers at the church that I was pastoring, one of the Sunday school teachers come out of a quick shop and he had a, a buggy or an arm load of, of, of alcohol and beer and he was ready to go out for, I guess, his big weekend. Now, you've heard me teach on this before. I understand the Bible doesn't teach teetotalism. I get it. I understand that. I understand that Jesus turned the water into wine. I get these things. But can I also tell you who would quote the verses that, that give you such great liberty that there are people who are watching you and they see your life and you become not a stepping stone to Jesus, but a stumbling block in the kingdom. And you have allowed the grace of God that has given you great freedom not to be slaves to sin, but to serve the one true and living God. You've allowed that to sear a conscience to some level that has caused you to be uncaring or unthinking about those who might look at your life and receive inspiration from it. The Lord saved me and He freed me, but He didn't free me to cause everybody else to stumble. Are you following me now? Now, you know, again, you can't declare just sort of corporate convictions, but I do think we've got to give room for the Spirit of God to help us in this area. Number three, we've got to determine between authority and independence. Authority and independence, your freedom. This is good news. Your freedom means this. You don't need a priest to get to God anymore. Isn't that good news? You don't have to set up an appointment with me, with a priest, or with anyone else to somehow get in contact with God. God is open 24-7, 365 for all of eternity. You get to walk in with boldness, the Scripture says, because of His grace. And access God and pray to Him and hear from Him. You can hear for yourself. You can pray for yourself. You don't have to have somebody stand as an intermediary for you to get to God. 
Now that's the good news. You are a priest unto yourself. You are independent in the sense that you can go before God without anyone's help. But our problem is that just as we may have our personal spiritual independence, the truth of the matter is, is that God still gives us leadership and authority in the earth. God still works through those like bosses and law enforcement and pastors and teachers and supervisors and all sorts of authority in order to speak into our lives. And we have a whole host of Christians who are out there who, who are walking under what I believe to be some level of delusion that all it is is them and Jesus and they don't have to listen to anyone else. And that's not the word. They're under grace, yes. They're saved by grace, yes. But they're missing what God could do because they're not embracing all that grace enables them to embrace. And then finally, number four, which I think maybe we'll just pull it all together, is, is that we got to differentiate between freedom and anarchy. I guess maybe this is what I was trying to say under number one. is just as there's a difference between order and control, there's a difference between freedom and anarchy. We're free in as much as we are under bondage. Like what Luther said, Luther wrote a book. He said, we're under bondage to no man, but at the same time, we're slaves to all men. How does that work? Well, it means this. It means I've been set free, but at the same time, my task now is God's purpose is that I have to reach and win and touch other people. And so I'm free, yes, but I'm still responsible. I, I enjoy liberty, but I still have, I still have godly, godly uh, uh, responsibilities and, and, and maybe even using the term restrictions that, that are no longer burdensome to me. Why? Because they've been what? Written on my and emblazoned in my freedom. Can I just say, I'm going to go back to the parental illustration here real quick since I got parents and kids with me today. Listen to me real, real closely. We do pretty good at this. We've done pretty good in the most part. But can I just tell you one of the greatest challenges for me because I'm kind of an orderly person. I mean, my life has, has order to it. And I like order. We often laugh that most of the time I look at life in outlines. You I mean, I just see life in an outline. I've outlined this morning. I've out, I outline everything. I like to-do lists. I like just one through ten. I like that. And that's kind of how I am. Some of you can identify with that. You're orderly people. But the greatest challenge, let me tell you what the greatest challenge for me as a pastor, because I take seriously, my job is to shepherd people and help them, help them, contact God. Now I'm not God. Aren't you glad? But my job description is to help shepherd people to him, help lead people to him. And when you're dealing with great numbers of people, one of the things that you have to work through is how do you help people find freedom, but at the same time, not let that freedom alienate others who are still trying to find him, especially in corporate setting. Now, let me just share this with you. Parents, listen to me very carefully. Because one of the greatest challenges, I'll just tell you, one of the greatest challenges I had, and my wife will tell you this, was probably, I don't know if it was a year ago now, but when I came back and I decided that I was going to start opening these wells up for worship. Because you remember, we didn't used to do that. And the, you know why we didn't do it? It's because you'd have people come and you give them a little freedom. In fact, there's an old statement that goes like this. You give them an inch and they'll take what? You know, you know, you know, most of those old things came because of experience. And, and one of my greatest concerns was if, if I give liberty 
You know, what's going to happen? It's just the same thing you go through with your kids. If I give them liberty in this area and I give them an inch, will they take a mile? I mean, you know what I'm feeling. And here's the part we have to sensitize ourselves to, because through the years I've watched people come in, in their liberty. What happened is, is that they begin to draw attention to themselves. They don't watch the culture. They don't watch how the order works within the house. They don't want to try. It's just all about them. And what happens is, is that they become a hindrance because everybody's watching them instead of worshiping the Lord. Now, again, we do a pretty good job at worshiping with a sense of order. I, I, I have no problem with this. I also don't have any problem, listen to me, with all of our children learning how to worship God. Now listen, don't be offended at me. I'm going to help you with your kids. I'm going to help. Listen, our job as parents is to train them to worship God. Are you following where I'm going with this? I'm glad, I'm glad that my children, when they were little, were able to come and learn how to worship God. I want your children to learn how to worship God. I want the next generation to know how to worship God. But here's your job as a parent. Your job as a parent is to help train them in what that means, right? And so as we're gathering as a body, we begin to help them and help one another worship God because you see, there's freedom, but there's not anarchy. There's freedom, but there's not just a free for all. It's worship time. It's not, listen, it's not playtime. Are you following me? Now listen, this is, this is not, I'm not correcting. I'm, I'm instructing. If I was correcting, you'd have had a phone call. This is instructing. We've got to understand that there is freedom, yes, but there cannot be anarchy. You just can't do whatever you want. You know that. I can't run into a crowded theater and yell fire, right? Well, I have, I have a First Amendment right. Why can't I do that? Because it hurts other people. I can't run on an airplane and yell bomb. Why, did, why not? Because that hurts other people. All right? And we've got to begin to understand in our freedom, as we're free before the Lord, whether we're free in our lifestyle, we're free in our worship, we're free in what our service, whatever area we're free in, we've got to understand that we're not free as an island unto ourselves. We're free as being slaves to Him in order that we might reach others. Now, if you're, if, you, if you're getting that, say amen. Amen. See, it's an important thing. Now, let, let me help you. I'm going to leave that now. We won't ride that horse anymore. Let me go to Romans now real quick. Everybody's going to Romans. And this is going to take about five minutes tops and I'm done. Kids, you're doing great. Pastor's loving you right now. You are doing wonderful in this place this morning. Thank you so much. Three words that are going to help you live by grace. These three words. Romans chapter 6. The first word is this. I posted it on the screen overhead. Romans 6. It is number one. No. K-N-O-W. Listen, Romans 6, 3, 6, 6, and 6, 9. It says this. It says, after he says, shall we continue in our sin that grace may abound? Verse 3, it says, or do you not know? Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Jump to verse 6. It says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with or rendered inoperative, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. 
And jump to verse 9. It says, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So the first thing, if you're going to live under grace, is that you've got to embrace the word to know. You've got to know that Christ died for you and that he set you free not to live for yourself, but to live for him. He set you free not to be slaves to sin, but to be set free from sin, the activity of sin, to be free to serve Him in righteousness. He set you free not that you would go back into your old ways just so you would feel better about it because you got your fire insurance or your forgiveness, but He set you free in order that He might write on your hearts and impress it upon your mind that you would have the want to inside of you to live for Him. He says, knowing this, do you know this? Are you following me? Know this. Know this. If you didn't know that, now you do. Know this. Know that this is what he's done for you. Then secondly, he says here in verse 11, it's the second word. I like, I like the King James Version. It says reckon. It's like a southern word, isn't it? Reckon. He says reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. The word reckon literally means to envision or to consider. Reckon yourself dead. Envision yourself dead to this stuff. I'm I'm dead to the beggarly ways. I am dead to the ways that bring destruction in my life. I mean, I've often looked at people and I've said to them, how much pain can you endure before you reach the place where you say, I don't want pain anymore in my life. And they're kind of, sometimes they'll look at me like, I don't know how much I can endure. And the problem is they've got to reckon themselves dead to this. I'm dead to this. There was a day when I was first saved And I was probably, you know, 18, 19 years old. And I was a hard partier. I mean, I know it's hard to imagine 32 some odd years ago. It's hard to believe pastor could have been a hard partier. But I'm telling you, there was a time in my life right after I got saved that if I would drive by a bar, it seemed like that thing talked to me. It woo me. It draw me. It say, come on over here. I mean, I can tell you numerous sins that so easily beset that seem to talk to me and woo me and, 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 and want me to come back into its ways. You say, how do you get through that? How do you stop that? You begin to reckon yourself or envision yourself dead. I'm dead to you. I am dead to you. Alcohol. I am dead to you. Drugs. I am dead to you. Promiscuous behavior. I am dead to you. I am dead. Just say it. Everyone say, I am dead to you. Yeah, that's how you and it's fill in the blank. I am dead to you. No longer has power over me. I'm dead to you. And you say, did it go away instantly? No, it keeps knocking for a little bit because it wants to make sure you're for real. And you just keep saying, nobody's home. Nobody's home. And you know what happened? And I don't exactly know when, but there was somewhere in the journey that it just quit knocking. It just quit knocking. No more. Because I reckoned myself dead. And then finally, verse 13. We're coming in for the landing. And it says, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This is what he means. He's saying, don't put yourself where you're presenting yourself for failure, for destruction, For upheaval, for confusion. Don't present your members. (laughs) 
That's what meant. If your little feet are walking your way to somewhere you ought not be, you're presenting your members there. Present them unto God as instruments of righteousness. This really isn't hard stuff. This is, this is relatively simple. The gospel is relatively simple if we'll get back to the place where we just embrace the simplicity of it and begin to implement it in our life. Present ourselves. If your eyes go places they ought not go, you know what? Your eyes don't have a mind of their own. I mean, there's not a little brain inside that pupil there. And it's making your eyes go over there to look at that thing, guys. What do I do? Seize your eyes. It's amazing. Your neck can seize your eyes. My neck has authority over my eyes. Isn't that amazing? I tell you what, you hang around here, I'll teach you biology too, man. If your hands go, what do I do? My hands just go. Just slap it. What do you think Jesus was saying? He, he was saying, actually, you remember the one verse he said? It would be better to cut your hand off and go to heaven maimed. Pluck your eye, I'll go to heaven maimed. Why would he say that? That sounds so radical. What he's saying is, he's saying eternity is at stake. And he's saying yeah, you can seize. And if you think your hand has a brain in it. Then he just said, cut the darn thing off. Now, I don't know, maybe they were laughing when he was telling it too. And, and maybe they were. Maybe it was as incredulous to the disciples as it is to us today. Because the truth is, there's no brain in that hand. Yeah. No brain in there. I love that. You present yourself to God. If, if my hand's going somewhere I ought not go, you do this. All right. No reckon and present. That's what begins. That's how we maintain. That's how we maintain the heart change. That's how that's how that's how we that's how we protect the grace that has transformed us. You know, the biggest mistake, I think, in our in our nation and I'm done. The biggest mistake in our nation is thinking that to change our nation, listen to me, we think to change our nation, we either have to change the White House or we have to change the Congress or, 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 or somehow we have to find a new political solution and maybe legislate differently. We, we, we have even bought this in the life of the church. Now, do I believe that God calls us to be responsible citizens and that we should practice our citizenship? Most assuredly. But I'm just going to share this with you until we get a revelation again that the only way our nation and the only way your household and my household will ever be right before God and ever function as he designed it to function. If we ever want to see God's favor again, if we ever want to see the supernatural and the miracles and all the things that God wants to, he desires to do these things. If we ever want to see these things again, listen to me, it isn't going to be passing another law and putting up another sign. It's going to be about opening up our lives and saying, oh God, I need a heart change. I need a heart change. 
Because if my heart's not changed, it's never going to work. If you don't pull out this old stony hard heart and put in something that's pliable and soft that you can write on, it'll never change. America doesn't need more politicians. It needs divine heart surgery. Heart surgery. Washington will never be right until men's hearts get right. South Carolina will never be right until men's and women's hearts get right. And our homes will never get right until our hearts get right. And the only one that can get them right, the only one that can do that is Jesus. There's no other name given among men. No other name given among men by which we must be saved than by the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me?